Special discussion going on today. I'm joined by my good friend, Mr. Nicholas Bate, uh, the promoter of the River City Wrestling Con, as well as uh, our intern uh, at our sister pop, our, our sister podcast, uh, Bold City Civics, which I do with Mr. John Lewis Meeks. You'll hear more about that uh, later on. Uh, Mr. Bate, uh, I'll throw it to you. Introduce our guest today. Well, I'm so honored to be the professional intern for you, Shelton. I must say it's one of my highest honors here. Uh, it's been a lot of fun over the past few weeks to be exploring Jacksonville from a more intimate level. And as I continue to learn about the inner workings of the city, I was, I struggled to find the word for it, dare I say baffled, but more surprised that my professor this past term was not only uh, running for uh, office here in the city, but is also, I would say, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find the words here because this is really such a unique situation for me, but this way we'll use no introduction. This is Dr. Uh, Eric Aguilar. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, very good. Thank you. You could just call me Eric. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm have to review that part and then edit it out, but um, <laughs> really... This is such a unique situation because Jacksonville is going through an expansion phase. And in the midst of that, uh, I must say, because whenever I emailed you the first time, I have to correct myself because I originally thought that you were running for the same position as uh, John Rutherford. But I, I later realized as I did research that the population in Jacksonville grew so much that another seat opened up. Is that what you're, is that the correct thing you're running for? Well, no, I'm still running against John Rutherford. Okay, yeah, so I'm on the correct. same seat. Yes, you were correct. Because um, uh, part of it, uh, Jacksonville is divided into two districts. Mm-hmm. So the downtown part and the west side, part to the west side, it's uh, uh, the 5th district. And the one I'm running for is the 4th district, which is more on the east side, right before the river. Gotcha. See, I was, it, there's so much, we'll be going over this throughout the interview, but there's so much going on in the city right now because... Uh, I believe Lenny Curry's term is up, and I know Donna Deegan's stepping up in a big way to uh, run in his position to become mayor. And just with the growth that the city is experiencing and with all of the money coming in, it, I know many are projecting very highly of Jacksonville, if I'm correct on that. Yes, yes, it's, it's definitely going to be a very interesting uh, Moyola race, uh, since we had also Alfaro and Marca, Mar- Marca Lucci and 
and some other ones that are still going to, to run for that position in 2023. Uh, I have a question. And it's a very important election. It's a very critical election because local elections do matter. They do. Mm -hmm. I have a question real quick about the uh, about the campaign. Uh, of course, you're running against uh, Mr. Rutherford. His seat was formally held by Andrew Crenshaw, and then before that, uh, Tilly Fowler. Um, and then the other seat, of course, is currently held by Al Lawson. Before that, Kareem Brown for quite some time. Uh, it seemed that for many years, those two congressional spots in, in particular never really had much competition uh, for whether it was Fowler or Crenshaw or Brown. They would typically have, they would typically run almost unopposed, and if they did have opposition, it was like neither party, it was like the Republicans had one side, the Democrats had another side, neither party tried to make any real inroads into the other's turf, but over these last couple of years, we're seeing more, um, it seems like more competition for those spots. Uh, you know, Donna Deegan ran against Rutherford last time, which was the first time anyone had, any Democrat had made any kind of real showing for that spot. Why do you think there's more competition happening with these uh, congressional seats? Well, I, I think that people are opening up their eyes. Uh, the candidates are seeing that there's some issues that are still going on and things are not addressed. You know, one thing we have to remember that government's supposed to be work for, working for the people, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And I think even with uh, the Trump 2016 win the election, one of the things that I did like about President Trump, what he started bringing more awareness of what's really going on. And I think a lot of people pay attention. Whether people, you know, liked him or did not like him, it didn't really matter. It just brought more attention. And I think now we're seeing more attention in politics because the decisions are being made and also the direction of the country, the state, and the city. So it's really good to see that people are more aware of what's happening. Of course, there's always some other uh, disruptions out there and some processes that we kind of know that are broken and they're not fully fixed. Um, so there, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think the exposure is one of those things that have brought on more, more candidates. And um, it's going to be very interesting how it's going. And of course, we want more patriots that are out there that are going to run for office, that are going to do something uh, for the people and improve our government uh, system that works for the people, not the other way around. Absolutely. Uh, is this your first uh, political campaign? Well, this is my second time running. I would tell you this, Nick and Sheldon, I am not a politician yes. by any means, and I don't even claim to be a politician. I'm a leader. Mm -hmm. I lead, I see a problem, and I go ahead and fix it. That's what people are going to see from me. Not all this showboat, um, a lot of uh, all this stuff. But th at the end of the day, we want to see results because that's one of the things. I'm retired Navy. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm the Navy chief. And one of the things that I was taught I uh, the Navy is always to bring results. Yeah. And that's what we're bringing. We're bringing results. I don't want to do this the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I really don't. I'm a firm, firm believer in term limits. If every office, especially the highest office, the President of the United States office, has a term limit, mm -hmm. everyone else sh should have. Yeah. So the Congressional and and uh, the Senate, they should definitely have term limits. And it's very disturbing to see that those that don't want it, because why? They want to keep a long-term job and grow roots there for like 40, 50 years, which is unsat in my opinion. Sure. It, it's not, that's not what government's supposed to be there to have a lifetime appointment. Yes. Now, I will, I will say I certainly believe in term limits for executive, uh, for executive positions and certain things. Now, we, for example, with our, our city council at one point, 
in decades past, we had no particular term limit. Now, the argument against term limits in some cases, particularly when you're looking at Congress and whatnot, uh, some would argue that because that, you know, that particular job is so complex that, you know, you want to be able to build up uh, institutional knowledge and, and the role that seniority plays in congressional leadership. For example, like if you had a, in the case of like a term limit, if you had like term limits in place, most of uh, the current uh, leadership in both houses of Congress on, on both sides would not be there right now. So it's, but then, you know, depending on who, which guy we're talking about, that may or may not be a good thing. Um, I was curious to know, do, does your background in the Navy, uh, do you feel that that helps you as far as um, like the kind of discipline and like just the logistics and the organiz- all the organizational matters that comes into play when you're running for office? Yes. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, Navy, the military is still government. You still work for the government at the end of the day. And the rules, you still have to follow them. Mm-hmm. And they're usually the military. They do have their own particular rules. But the rules also align with the federal side, uh, the civil service also. Um, there's some things that are more strict because the, the military is a little bit more stricter for, for good reason. Yes. So we don't want people going rogue. We want to make sure we follow orders and we work as a unit, mm-hmm. not having people going on all different sides. So we do have stricter uh, rules uh, for that. Um, so part of working in the government has helped me to understand. One of the things is when I get into something, I like to understand it a little bit better and know it more and see if I fit in. That's another part of it that I, that I look for. Um, so running for office is one of those things. First, I have to get permission from my wife <laughs> to make sure that it's okay because I do have six kids, so she will have to take care of quite a bit of them because going back and forth in Jacksonville and always um, sure. keep being around for the people because that's my commitment to be around for people, not to go ahead and hide yeah. all over the place. And even of those that didn't vote for me, I will still be around them. So it doesn't matter if they're Democrats, independents, you know, the American people, period, at the end of the day. So what can we actually do to help support our communities and, and move our country forward? Um, so you, part of the, you know, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did y'all catch that static? I did. I caught the static. All right. Do you mind running through that again? That last bit? Because there was like that, um, like halfway through your statement, there was like a whole bit of static. Uh, which statement? Uh uh, it was right after you were talking about you didn't hope to run and hide whenever you got in office. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So one of the things we want to look at is my commitment to the people was to be around, not to run and hide uh, like others. Uh, we want to make, I want to make sure that I am there for everyone because that is my commitment and that is my promise. And I would like to take the, this seat and take a lot of the different decisions, um, that would move our country forward here for the, for the next um, couple of years. I don't want to stay in, in office that long. I think that there's always should be good turnaround. Mm-hmm. And I know there was a, you know, you mentioned, Nick, uh, about, uh, you know, there's different arguments that are there. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is a, an office that should be for any American. Mm-hmm. And there are, there is a criteria yeah. um, for running for office. And one of the things that is not a criteria is having experience. We do want to have people with experience, such as they have budgeting, understanding um, some legal knowledge. There's no degree requirement to run for office, um, but it's good to have quite a bit of uh, different skills. And part of 
the skills that I developed in the Navy. I've always been curious about doing certain jobs. I've never been afraid to tackle on certain jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's another aspect that I know that Congress, Congress, you are correct, is so many different um, aspects of it to learn about it. But having experience in the military and the government, going through manuals, going through instructions, it, it leaves me, it, I have the skills to dig into it because it is impossible for one person to know every single law, every little single thing uh, by print. We are actually, I think we're law laws overload, in my opinion, yeah. when it comes uh, to, to the government. And so some of those things need to be streamlined at the end of the day and having the background in, in the Navy and having to go through a lot of instructions, even understanding some laws has helped me, uh, I believe, to prepare me for this congressional seat. Well, I do have uh, one thing I'm curious about is earlier, uh, whenever we were going through the intro, you mentioned that you see a problem and you fix it. What's uh, What are the main issues you see with Jacksonville as it currently stands? Well, one of the current issues that I, that I do see, and again, I am a leader, I'm not a politician, so I may not say the right things that people want to hear, but you know that when I say it is what I mean and what I think about it. Um, one of the, the issues that I have is, is especially the budget. Budget's not going um, where it needs to go. And this goes also in conjunction uh, with the school district. The school district, it, it's another area that needs to be um, in a way better aligned, especially when it comes to government salaries because uh, they're all government. Um, so one of the things is control the budget, still control the salaries. I know some people don't like that, but it, it's one of those things that is taxpayer money at the end of the day and also providing the, the service. It shouldn't be inflated. Another aspect will be is where are we going to continue to um, put our infrastructure at, at the end of the day? Uh, infrastructure here in Jacksonville is very, very critical, especially how we keep um, moving um, all the way uh all over the place. And of course, public safety is the number one issue that we should all be focused on. And I will tell you this again, I'm not a politician, I'm a leader. From a leadership point of view, um, I we have racked up so many numbers when it comes to uh, murders and crime around the state, which is really uh, very disturbing because we have so many resources available, and yet it is not being utilized properly, and also we don't have the proper community involvement along with that, because it's not to just throw more law enforcement out there, it's also to better improve our communities. Um, so here in Jacksonville, I noticed the biggest issues, it's always been public safety, and of course, always looking at education. Those are another aspect that is very, very critical to still have parents have a school choice and not just be mandated that this is the only place that your kids can go to school. On the subject of the infrastructure, that's something, I, as you know from communicating with me, I'm very vocal about because it, I always, whenever I calculate the timeline of Jacksonville, I always have pre and post Super Bowl. That's how I uh, kind of identify that because prior to the Super Bowl, especially during the 90s, Jacksonville went through this massive improvement phase of the Jaguars and expanding downtown. And then post Super Bowl, we hit this big bout of urban sprawl that later, especially during the pandemic, had a reverse effect, but it wasn't necessarily 
from the people that moved out moving back in, but people from outside the state moving into Jacksonville. And when it comes to the infrastructure here, uh, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Shelton, but I believe whenever we last communicated with um, John Lewis Meeks, yeah. he kind of described it as a uh, donut rotting from the inside out. Is that what he said? I want to say it was something to that effect. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, where, where it's kind of like, you see all of this past glory in the sense of like the stadium being improved, but then the areas around it deteriorating or like the Regency area that's kind of went belly up in that post Super Bowl phase. But really just from my experience running events and things in the area, the lack of public transportation, the lack of hotels and, and really just not having a well-defined entertainment district seems to be the biggest issue when it comes to those uh, elements, especially when you're running events downtown, because it's almost as if the way downtown is arranged is counterproductive to those elements. What do you hope to uh, inspire change in in order to better improve the the, uh, infrastructure here? Yeah, no, that's a very, that's one of those areas that I'll say is very concerning. And I noticed that too. Um, I did put in my website, ericforcongress.com, some areas of where we can actually improve the city and still bring in some good revenue and also provide a good entertainment experience uh, for those that come out of town and those that are actually that live here. Um, downtown is one of those areas that you are correct. I saw that in the Super Bowl. I was here. Um, we also had some some from the from our navy they asked for volunteers to help out with the super bowl and and uh and we were able to volunteer and i noticed how they're changing how they were trying to beautify it but they just stopped they just stopped and i thought it was okay it's one year two year and after a while i just kept saying yeah this super bowl is not coming back here because they don't want to make the improvement they don't want to do it i think one of the bad things that happened with the lessons learned or even the NFL that they didn't bring in here was that they did not have a good entertainment experience. You got to look at it. When the Super Bowl comes here, it's a lot of money that comes here. There's millions and billions of dollars. Now it's just coming to billions of, uh, of revenue. And people come here in a way to spend money, enjoy the Super Bowl, and have a great time and have a good entertainment experience. Well, we kind of know the downtown area, it doesn't really provide that. And there was no forward movement to change that experience. I sometimes think that it's just a limited amount of space for the amount of people that comes to the, the downtown. One of my ideas that I had for infrastructure for Jacksonville is to build a bigger entertainment complex um, around either north of the airport uh, or somewhere around that area where there's a lot of more land mass mm-hmm. uh, that is there. And we could have different things. You could have a, a professional baseball team come here. We could do something that we actually have professional hockey teams because Vice Star um, Memorial Arena, it, it's it's a good arena. It's nice. But the thing is that to carry the throughput of 50,000 to 100,000 fans is very, very congested and becomes a big, big problem. So uh, people may not go. I think we need to expand it a little bit more somewhere else because downtown is limited. Now we could do something else with downtown to provide a good entertainment experience, uh, but there also has to be good attractions for people to 
come from out of town. Another expansion aspect that I had is to increase also part of the tourism and increase part of the ports when it comes to um, cruise ships. I know right now, um, due to COVID and some restrictions that they may have, but we can always work with that. It's, it's also to build and actually increase the capabilities of JIA, the airport, to have a real international terminal that actually has, um, uh, you know, the, the immigration area where people can come from all over um, different areas and they could just clear customs there. I think that's also a limitation. But look at Orlando. Orlando started out very small. It was a very small airport. And now what are they offer? They, are, they expanded their airport so much that now people from all over the world come to Disney World. In a sense, it's just having a good entertainment experience and just having ideas and also partnering up um, with good businesses that want to see uh, Jacksonville grow. And they will actually have um, more longevity along with that because we don't want to create a particular type of uh, infrastructure and then the business just leaps. We want to make sure that there's a good partnership, long-term partnership at the end. And that's a very valid point when you bring up the north side because there's so much untapped potential there because yes. on the subject of the Super Bowl, the entire incentive to build River City Marketplace was because of that, uh, because there was there was no, as, as we mentioned, there's no infrastructure at the time. But the deterrent there is, is, if you're going to the Super Bowl, the stadium is a good 20 minutes away from the actual airport. And that's one of the, the bigger logistical issues of actually pulling something off in Jacksonville, because to get to downtown from the north side, on a good day with no traffic will take you about 20 minutes. And even then the lack of, there's no hotels in either of those areas. So like if you're flying into Jacksonville, there's I think really one decent hotel attached to the airport. And that's real. I think it's a double tree. I could be wrong, but that's really it. And then if you go downtown, you have the Hyatt or you have the Omni as the two major ones in the area. And those are not even close to the stadium. So if you were to even facilitate, as you're saying, that entertainment mecca toward the airport, that would clear up a lot of that logistical mess because you would actually have it at least within 10 minutes or so of coming into Jacksonville. And, yes. mm-hmm. and, and that's something that you see in a lot of major cities like Orlando or Miami. Everything is in one place. Or uh, Sunrise, Florida has become more recently a... a, a sort of an attraction to large-scale events because you have the mall and the stadium connected to each other and then you have the hotels built around that so you have this really uh, a small city that's built specifically for a large-scale event yeah and you know and we're looking at it we're talking about it and if, if you think about it it's not a very hard thing to think about of what will be the future of it it's very very simple the question is now whether people are going to take action on it or not. And that's where results matter, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and on that same subject, uh, another discussion that uh, John and Sheldon and I have been having is with the abundance of people moving here, the grand question when it comes to Jacksonville is what is the identity and aesthetic of the city? Because when you think of Florida, a lot of people have... Uh, a one-track mind where it's like a, almost like an island or a, a tropical paradise. Think of Orlando, Tampa, and Miami. But whenever you bring up 
Jacksonville, it seems as though people are stumped on that uh, kind of getting the wheels turning, kind of coming up with a vision of what Jacksonville is. In your mind, what is the cultural identity of Jacksonville? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question to determine because it could go, it's all over the place of what is the identity. We have the beaches area, we have the, the Jaguars, we have um, certain industries coming here to, to Jacksonville. And that's uh, one of the things, for me, I will have to say that Jacksonville, based on the grand scheme of things, to become profitable and moving forward, will have to be an entertainment experience. Just like Orlando became in Tampa, right? they're all connected, that became an entertainment experience. And in a way, we could do the same thing because we can go to uh, St. Augustine, go to Fernandina Beach. That, in a way, it's a more of a tri-city type area that it's easily people can move. Just take I-95 and you're on both either side. Um, so I will have to say that eventually Jacksonville will have to move more certain entertainment and that's going to be able to bring a lot more business um, because of the fact you're going to still have more banks coming over here because certain things have to be funded right you have developing that is going to keep growing you're also going to bring in more technology uh, part of it one of my other ideas that I had is eventually try to have more in a, in a particular area that it's since we have a lot of land is to bring um, also a car manufacturer around this particular type of area since we do have the space mm -hmm. and we have the capability and we do have the infrastructure. There's a lot of unused uh, land around this particular area and also... It'd be a great place uh, for Tesla. Yeah, and, and the infrastructure is there because I-95 goes to a whole bunch of places and we have mm -hmm. different roads. So basically, we could have multiple areas in Jacksonville that people can work and have entertainment and still reduce the congestion. Right now, we have a main congestion area, and that's downtown. And eventually, we have to move move away from that because of the fact that you're going to lose a lot more business. Yes, you do have a lot of cars, but there's a lot more people and a lot more, in a way, customers than there are of those cars in Jacksonville. This is why e-commerce is very popular because mm -hmm. you can have millions of people buying something in a second. Yeah, and... and we and I think also moving forward, we're going to need a a, a drastic upgrade in our mass transit because you know yes. I I love the idea of like building out uh, the north side as we've already seen with the uh, River City Marketplace that concept you know our our international airport is already you know they're doing fantastic numbers going up every year they they've got a uh, you know a um, an art gallery out there now I could see eventually you know having like live music venues and such there but we also need I think one thing that would be very useful would be to develop a way to like bring like a uh, light rail or passenger rail into uh, the urban core into downtown I like that they're ex they're looking to expand the skyway into the Brooklyn area which will you know help connect downtown and like the the Riverside, uh, Amdale area a bit more. You know, this city is so large and we have such, so many little like enclaves, not just ethnic enclaves, but you know, like we need, to, you're talking about, uh, say, having a Super Bowl here. And I'm a big wrestling fan. I've, I've long been an advocate 
of trying to draw WrestleMania here as a way of showing, you know, that we're capable of hosting another Super Bowl at some point because those two events tend to kind of piggyback off each other in terms of locations they go to. But we got to find a way to really like uh, connect like down the downtown, the urban core area with uh, the beaches, you know. For example, I could see making you know turning Regency in part into another little like mass transit hub like if we had like a rail line con- of, of some type connecting the beaches from uh you know 24 7 that'd be a real that'd be a real boon to tourists and of course the beaches would love it as well yeah there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of innovation of what Jacksonville could be you're correct yeah. It really, I, I, whenever I have these conversations with people, I always sum up Jacksonville as the framework for an unrealized metropolis because it, it's really like they built the uh, framework for uh, a major city, almost like in Atlanta, but nobody has realized that vision. Yes. And I, I, I really compare it to the landing situation as the perfect irony of Jacksonville where you built up this genius idea of having a shopping district right on the river, and it's a no-brainer because it's a, you can have like a yeah. little ferry that takes you there. If they built up condos and a parking garage, it would have been a, an easy money yeah. idea. But it now it's an empty lot because they couldn't figure out what exactly to do with it. Yeah, it worked perfectly for 20 years. Like. Back when you know the landing, and a lot of this is Jake, a lot of that's Jake Gonbold era stuff. Things like the uh, Museum of Science and History, uh, Times Union Center, the Omni, uh, the the landing and whatnot was part of Jake Gonbold's uh, vision for a renewed downtown. And the landing thrived for you know the first 20 years that it was open. They did fine. They were making plenty of money. It was a failure to modernize and and like yeah like you said like there should have been more parking things like that there's no reason that it like it was telling that their numbers started to decline just as overall numbers as far as foot traffic uh, business growth whatnot was growing in downtown you know which in theory should have like led to a subsequent rise uh, you know in fortunes for the landing you know they used to have all the major you know everything you would expect at any mall they would have it there as well as like local artisans and stuff and you know it's like the business model worked fine for 20 years and then they just sort of abandoned it for some reason and now my goodness they're making more money with the vacant lot you know than they're making than they're making with the landing That's why it's such a, a beautiful, ironic situation where they found that an empty lot was more profitable for that area, uh, which is just, it kind of boggles your mind. But I, I really think that it just comes down to, at least in, in my opinion, this is perhaps discussion you could say for another part of this interview, but mm-hmm. I really find that there wasn't a person with a distinct vision for Jacksonville that was really, like, I guess it's a more complicated statement, but really I just find that there was 
a lack of vision when it came to developing the city over the past few decades, where it's like you had people with good ideas, but there wasn't enough power behind it to realize them. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the decline of the the decline of the good old boys kind of uh, kind of led to that. You know, uh, consolidation happened in 67, 68, and that was you know done like you know there are a lot of political implications to it, but a big part of the selling point of consolidation was let's uh, you know let's streamline and consolidate city and county services so that we have like one unified infrastructure covering the whole city and county and then you know getting back to this framework of a major city type thing we were looking very much at some of the stuff that was happening in places like like uh atlanta for example and you know miami even um in terms of wanting to build things out and then that and then hans tanzer was mayor from 67 to 79 and he was uh he, he did a great job of being like kind of a quarterback for the city, drawing in a lot of that that investment that began to really manifest itself in the 1980s, you know. Unfortunately, we were doing that. We were trying to build up downtown at a time when downtown areas in general were in decline across the country, uh, urban cores. It kind of, you know, take Times Square for example so like you know what I mean so by the time we got I always like to say that downtown Jacksonville was busier in 1921 than it is in 2021 even after all the growth that's happened so far and on the subject of downtown uh, because this has been a focal point of the conversation I definitely want to circle back to it because um, Eric brought up the point of the crime rate in Jacksonville. Yeah. And one of the unique stigmas about the downtown especially is that it is the crime capital of the city, but as uh, statistics have led us really to see nowadays is that more crime is happening in the suburbs yeah. than in the downtown Jacksonville area. So my, my next question would be, what is the plan to remove that stigma about downtown and further incentivize the redevelopment of the area? Yeah, so, again, I'm not a politician. I'm a leader, so I'm going to tell you what I think about it. You know, one of the things that we meant that we look at, perception sometimes becomes reality. Mm -hmm. um, so we, when you look, go to downtown, you see a lot of homeless. So when we look at it, the perception is that if we see homeless, we see crime, right? Which is not true. <laughs> it's different. Homeless is a different issue, and crime is a, is a whole other issue um, with it. This is one thing that I would say that the, the sheriff's office has, has done really well, is to try to put pinpoint where crime is happening. And you're correct, sometimes crime happens in a different parts of, of the city, not so much concentrated in downtown, but because also the downtown is, doesn't have a good uh, aesthetic look in some places, we have the stigma. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, right near New York City, that you know, that the perception is always a reality when it comes to if it doesn't look good, then it must have a lot of crime, which is not true. So 
to remove that, it's basically one of the things is to show proof, and that is to show um, the statistics and be a little bit more out there. I think that sometimes the, the sheriff's office, um, they should put a weekly or biweekly statement and, you know, be covered so that way they are, keep the public more informed um, because I know that they have social media, but not a lot of people look at it. Sometimes they want to hear it and sometimes they got to cover it if it is in a way, um, particular areas that not are there. Um, it's, to change the image, it does take a while because even with the Navy, one of the big stigmas that I always have with the Navy is always the drunken sailor look, right? <laughs> you know, sailors have a, has a particular stigma when it comes to overtime. But one of the things that the Navy did is started changing the uniform, um, the professional standards, the character, uh, within there. So that's one of the things that we have to look at is also looking at the character, also placing the right type of, of support services and funding for the particular areas. Um, the downtown, I, I don't think that they have placed too much of a focus when it comes to this. This has always has been, and again, I'm not a politician, um, we have to follow who are the political donors in this city. And when you follow the political donors, at times, that's you're going to follow where the decisions are going to lie. Unfortunately, that, that, is, the rea that is the reality. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think we both have a pretty good idea of who those group of people are that are yeah. making those donations. They are, and it's not that they're doing it in secret, because, you know, political donations, you have to disclose them. It's not in secret what's happening. Um, the thing is, it's looking at the interest. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that I learned, you know, in the Navy is you take care of people, the mission will take care of itself. And this is where I think the city needs proper leadership to start focusing more on the people itself because if they actually um, put more attention to the, the services that people actually need, the crime is going to start to solve itself at the end of the day. Um, because there's always a lot of talk about inflation, and you know, there's I've been following the news and been looking at it. I read articles. You know, you take that for what it's worth. I look at more action. I don't look at the particular articles at times. It just gives me some information, like, oh, okay, let me go research it so I could see what's going on. And even right now, they talk about inflationary prices. It's not really inflationary prices, because um, the the PPI index came out uh, last month, right? And it just basically showed that uh, the PPI index of how much manufacturing it costs for companies, it was actually lower than the consumer price index, which is how much consumers are paying for. So what does that mean? That means that companies are inflating um, the prices. It's not because of the economic side of it. Um, so we have to pay a little bit um, more close attention to what's happening. And we can actually fix um, the crime. Yeah, of course, it's going to take like an all-hands approach, um, but I don't think there's a lot of community engagement, not so much by the police officers. Um, the police officers, uh, they're out there doing their job. I think it's more of the leadership and the administration that really, really needs to have more of a focus um, because that action has shown that it's not has been a strong focus and even the action of the mayor and the city council that they really want to um, focus on fighting crime. The action is not there. I'm sorry. They could come and say something to me about it, but I go by action. I don't care what they say. I want to I see what they do. And, and you bring up a valid point on 
the community engagement because one of the one of the unique things about this Jacksonville situation is that as we saw over the pandemic, uh, I believe uh, uh, this may have been this may be older information, but whenever the pandemic was really hitting its peak, it was revealed that Charlotte, North Carolina, and Jacksonville, Florida were the top two cities booming during that time period. And this is a two-part question for you. My, the first part is, why do you believe Jacksonville stepped up so highly as a growing city during the pandemic? And uh, the second part of the question would be, with the scattered demographic of people moving to Jacksonville, do you believe there will be somewhat of a culture war between the native Jacksonville civilians and the new people moving in? Or do you think there would be uh, a very smooth... Um, integration with them coming in. Um, so for the second question, right, mm-hmm. now, are you referring more to a political culture or are you referring just a social culture? I, I, it would be more both because okay. with the, and the reason I bring up this question is just from my experience, whenever I'm looking at the, the demographics coming in, you have um, really what hasn't been shown is there's an abundance of international people moving here, especially because you know I'm I'm uh, Arabic, and there Jacksonville has always had a very prominent Arabic uh, population, but because the census defines this as Caucasian, you don't necessarily see that represented in a lot of surveys about it. But with the current uh, pandemic having a lot of influence on where people are going, you see a lot of people from South Africa coming in, a lot of people from England, a lot of people from Saudi Arabia, and um, even some, uh, I saw an uptick in people from Ukraine and Russia coming in, and they have a lot of their political and social beliefs coming in here. And then you also have the people from the West Coast and the Northeast especially coming in. And I guess it would be more to the social and political culture of Jacksonville, uh, where that would where you would see a lot of that change. Uh, so does that clarify a little bit for you? No, it is definitely. That's one of the things that I look at. I'm a data-driven person. I look at the data. I look to see what is it moving because um, I do look, of course, how many um, of each party there are, how many Democrats, how many Republicans. I do follow more of the lines of Jacksonville. I did follow uh, the special elections to, to see where is um, Jacksonville going to go. At the end of the day, there are people moving from the north. I think that usually the COVID has been a big uh, case on that one because of the fact that now they have remote from work and also a lot of people in, in the country that are moving here they, and even internationally, they kind of noticed that Florida, we are basically just part of the, the founding principles that we let people make their choices, make their choices. We don't have yeah, the government start locking people down and doing all these other craziness with government takeover. Um, so here in Florida, one of the things that they have been doing really well is the fact that they gave people the choices. And they understand that if you want, uh, that if a person does have a health issue, then, you know, it is their choice whether they want to keep going or they want to, you know, stay home. It's, it's, it's a choice with social distancing. It's a choice with still wearing masks. It's a choice with even getting vaccinated. Right, because it's not just COVID. I mean, we had diseases before COVID, <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's just it wasn't 
COVID, you know, just provided more, more uh, exposure at the end of the day. So the political aspect is, yes, you know, that's one of the things that I look at. Is other people coming here, are they going to bring some of their politics of failed policies from blue states? And we don't want that, of course, because we don't want to have taxes raised. Um, you know, that's the reasons why they came here. <laughs> they came over here because there's no income tax, right? They, they, they come here because there's a lot more breaks and there's a lot of things. So, yes, that's one of the things that... Um, that is a big issue. Now, this is where I also have noticed that a lot of politicians, elected officials, they don't take the responsibilities of actually giving conferences, providing information, having information that people can learn. This is the reason why I believe in this. This is one of the things that I want to change if I get elected, is to basically have a conference, keep people informed. Um, because if you don't keep them informed, then they're just going to hate you, and they don't understand what's happening, right? So we have to have that two-way communication also, that the citizens can tell their elected officials what they actually um, think and what do they feel the direction should be, and vice versa. And I don't really see that happening. I see Jacksonville as most closed up, and I tested this. I did test it with uh, local leaders here, and I tested it with other leaders to see who would be more prominent to respond to you and actually listen to you. Jacksonville, of course, did not do it. Uh, before he ran for office, I tried contacting the mayor. No response. The city council, no response. They just basically shut people down. That's before I even declared politics that I was going to run. But when I look at St. John's, St. John's uh, County, they did pretty good about responding, and so did Nassau County. Nassau County was one of the best ones. They did respond. But I think that Jacksonville needs to be more open with their communications and their intentions. Because even what happened with JEA, that was a big problem. And in my opinion, the only reason why there was a lot of uh, a reverted course was because somebody was going to go to jail. And it was very serious. <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded subject in itself. And uh, the... And the other part to that second question about the people moving here is, do you see them changing the culture of Jacksonville as a whole over the next few years? Yes, they're going to change it. And that's when, if we don't communicate, me as a conservative, is I don't communicate it. This is why I believe that I'm, I'm pro-life. This is the reason why we want to put money into the, the community. This is the reason why people have choices. I don't think there is that outreach. Um, from local politicians. This is one of my issues that I even have John Rutherford. First of all, John Rutherford's a nice guy. <laughs> I will say it. He's a nice guy, uh, but I just don't see him doing things. I don't see him as an actionable person. Um, him and I, we believe in America first, but he just, he's in the position to do something about America first, but he doesn't do it. I'm a person that I go by action, speak louder than words. So the action's not there. So this is why sometimes people ask me, why are you running against him? He's a conservative, and you're running against him. It's not that it's anything personal. It's because I've always been a servant of the people, that I want to serve them properly. I see somebody that is not doing the job that they need to be doing, and I'm not satisfied with my representation because of the action, not because of the person. He's a nice person. He really is. 
he just doesn't have the fight in him to actually put forth things and doesn't communicate with us on why things are being done and where's the money going to. And those are very strong points about uh, John Rutherford. Uh, these, the first question that I asked was, um, with the pandemic having you know big influence on where people are moving to, and uh, one of the surveys I saw was that Charlotte, North Carolina was in first place and Jacksonville was in second place in terms of the growing metropolitan areas of the United States. Why do you find that Jacksonville was held in such a high position during that time as a destination to be moving to? I mean, uh, I think I mentioned that earlier that it was it's just because it was open. It didn't. It had mm -hmm. some of the rules. It had some of the state, but it was not a lot of enforcement. They let businesses make the choices. They let people make the choices. Because I was campaigning quite a bit, and there were a lot of places that are that are open. I mean, we're respectful of businesses and respectful of them being open. Um, I did see law enforcement around those businesses. Even there were some things going on, law enforcement did not really put that much force because they also believed that it was still the, the choice for them to do. And I, I think that was one of the biggest um, um, areas that they let businesses and they let the people make the choices. And people were making the best choices for themselves. I didn't really see any complaints. I know there were some things going around the news, but I went all over Nassau County, you know, which was Fernandina Beach and Hilliard. I went all around Jacksonville, San Marco, um, all over the beaches, and people are just doing the right thing. You know, I, I think that we need to let people make their choices, and they like it. And I think that's why people kept coming over here, because I think deep down behind the scenes, the word was spreading that the beaches were open. Restaurants were still trying to be open as much as possible. Certain things were open. So in even more those states, people kept coming over here um, because it was open, because they wanted to travel. They didn't like the lockdowns. Nobody really liked the lockdowns at the end of the day. And I think a, a good final question for this, because uh, it kind of ties up a lot of the points that you were mentioning about communication and uh, just your overall experience uh, running for office in the city. A lot of people pinpoint that Jacksonville operates on a good old boy system. So do you believe it still does operate on a good old boy system? And if so, what is your plan to change that? Well, this is, uh, again, I'm a leader, not a politician. Based on the action that I have seen with political donations, political campaigns, political and decisions, and also the decisions for the leaders, yes, there is. I found a very interesting fact that I did not know this until I started actually doing a lot more fundraising. I don't think a lot of people are aware of. In the state of Florida, less than 2%, less than 2% donate to campaigns political campaigns in Northeast Florida. That's including St. John's County, Duval County, and Nassau County. So what does that mean? It means that when you have um, the mayor raising over 500000 you have state representatives raising over 175000 and you have a lot of people raising a whole bunch of money and you have less than 2% in the state of Florida donating, that goes to show you 
that there are a lot of people that are very wealthy and they're donating. Even my opponent, John Rutherford. All this campaign finance, it's open for everybody to see. He only has about nine wealthy donors. And some of them are homemakers. I never knew that a homemaker can donate $5,800 to a political campaign. It's an interesting salary. Somebody has that. And part of it, and there's some names that are out there that they do it. Even the local chairman, Duval, GOP chairman, he also has hefty donations in a position that he doesn't get paid. Again, I'm not a politician. I'm a leader. I follow the money. I follow where things are going. So based on the action and the money that's moving, even right now we have Nick Holland. Nick Holland, that he won, he had a lot of establishment support from the wealthy donors. And even for those um, that are in office, that those wealthy donors supported. You can look this up. It's all public information. I'm not making this up. It's all with the data. So it shows, based on the data and the money and the flow, it's showing that, yes, there is a good old boy system. There are wealthy donors that are actually um, donating. So that's why I expanded my fundraising nationally. Mm -hmm. I've had over 4,000 donors all around the country, some here in Jacksonville and some all over the place with a dollar, $100 donations all over. Because I already know that the odds are against me because there is a particular club that is here. They're going to try to put $2,900, $5,800. Even the Duval chairman, Dean Black. He even donated to John Rutherford in the last election of $2,800. So, and he's a pretty well-off guy. So, yes, to answer your question, based on data, yes, there is a wealthy, and I could go on and on and on about this. Well, that and that raises a question for me also as to, you mentioned uh, expanding your fundraising nationally, which is a, which is a very good idea. Because you're, you know, you're dealing with the incumbent. Number one, he is an incumbent uh, running for, I think, his third term uh, in Congress. Plus, fourth. He has, fourth, fourth. Plus, he has the fundraising and the institutional support. And of course, he is a former sheriff, so his name recognition is already, you know, you know, fair, fairly high within the community. So these are all sort of natural advantages he, he has. And also, you know, you you tend to you're coming from a bit of a conservative perspective uh, and going against Rutherford, who typically has shown most of his vulnerability uh, from the from the more progressive side of the aisle. Like uh, Deegan took, um, you know, Deegan standing against uh, Rutherford in 2020 was it sort of exceeded anything that anyone else has been able to do, even back in the Crenshaw. And uh, Tilly Fowler uh, era. So I guess my question is, where do you see uh, your base of support coming from uh, as you attempt to challenge uh, Rutherford for this spot? And to what extent are you willing to consider reaching across the aisle to maybe get some of these, uh, you know, maybe some of these some of these people that are disgruntled with uh, Mr. Rutherford for other reasons? Uh, well, the, the first part of the question is, um, well, the reaching across the aisle, okay? This is another issue that I have with Mr. Rutherford, mm -hmm. is 
based on where the direction of the country is going to, you you cannot reach across the aisle um, based on the decisions and the way that um, the left wants to change uh, America. They don't want to change it for the best. They want to change it for the worst. That's the problem that I have. I served our country for 20 years, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let it burn in flames. That's why I'm also running. Mm-hmm. I was very happy retired with my wife, with my six kids, enjoying it. But I just can't see it. Sometimes I was like, I ask myself, why do I keep running? Why do I keep running? And it's like, I just can't just turn my head and look away. I just can't do it. I want to, but I can't. There's no way that my values would let me just walk away from it. I just can't. Um, So even when we look at it, with Donald Deegan, I will tell you this. This district... It's an R plus 17. Mm-hmm. Donald Deegan has no chance, no chance of winning this, this, this election. But there was no way she was ever going to do that. It's about 280,000 Republicans and only 155,000 Democrats. No possible way to do it. I understand that she raised the money. You know, she has the name recognition when it comes to the, being an anchor. And then also uh, the Donna run, but there was no chance. The numbers showed that. The numbers showed that that it was not going to happen. So we already knew that whoever's going to win the Republican primary was going to win the, the seat. It's the same thing almost with the other the fifth district. Um, and there was also no community engagement to even change it. So Donna Deegan doesn't have it. She's running for mayor. Does she have a chance for mayor? I will have to say yes. She does have a chance to probably win that, and that's scary because the numbers are there that there are in more Democrats in Duval County than there are Republicans. Right. Um, so that's a problem. So what will be changing? There are going to be some changes when it comes to the campaign. Um, uh, there were some lessons learned, and that's something that a lot of the Navy is like, okay. Um, you know, succeed the first time, just go ahead and keep going and then have some lessons learned. So lessons learned, there is a process to campaigning and I thought that I was a little bit more innovative in some of the other ways that I did it, but now it's going to be a process because even the special election showed that you have to follow a process to get to that particular point. So now I'm following the steps of the process to get to that point and change it. I'm a firm believer, yes, it could be uh, change. Is there a chance I could win? Yes. There's, of course, there's a big chance that I could win, especially now that the country's not heading in the right direction. Um, and everything that happened with election fraud and even with uh, Joe Biden, uh, it's definitely, I think that now people realize the reason why. And I have had quite a bit of people already call me and says, yes, I didn't vote for you. I voted for John Rutherford, but he, he can't do this. He doesn't have the fight to move forward our country and a lot of people are going to switch their votes some already and that was that and that was back in january i kept getting calls i still get some calls um about it and i still get some messages in, in social media that right now it's the time to have somebody who's going to fight not somebody to be the most bipartisan person in congress we can't bend a knee to the left it's not going to work Excuse me. Um, it's a very, you're right, it's a very crucial time 
right now, just not not even just for for Jacksonville's uh, upcoming elections, but for almost everyone's uh, upcoming elections, because we're in this uh, kind of a reset period now, where it seems that both parties have adopted sort of a, a more mutated ideology within them, especially with people feeling so strongly from the uh, the pandemic and. It seems that in some of the ways you were describing that uh, a lot of the upcoming political ideologies are more emotionally motivated than data motivated, which I, I think is an interesting observation. But um, especially as it relates to, to Northeast Florida, when you're talking about people and their uh, drive to fight, I, I definitely hope we see more of that coming in, in the uh, upcoming election because with all of the changes coming into Jackson, all the money coming in, we definitely need more driven leaders who are relying on data to make crucial decisions in this area because uh, I believe that if, if the right people are in place and Jacksonville continues to grow the way it is, that we could be like the new Atlanta. Because really, Jacksonville is the gateway to Florida. There's no reason why we can't be an entertainment mecca and give people... Uh, a good experience as they further go south in, in the state. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yes. But uh, Shelton, go ahead and close this one up and wrap oh, it up since sure. I think we've gotten all the major points uh, driven in and hopefully we can plan a part two closer to the election. Yeah, that was, a fun, that was definitely a fun session. We'll definitely be keeping in touch. Uh, of course, 2022 is a big election year. Uh, midterm election. We've got about 33 Senate seats, about oh, almost all 435 congressional seats, including Mr. Rutherford's seat. We've got the governorship up for grabs. We've got a Senate seat up for grabs here in Florida. We've got all the state legislature seats up for grabs. We've got about half the state Senate seats up for grabs. And then six months after the November election, well, really four months after the November 22 election, we've got all 19 city council seats, the mayor, sheriff, uh, property appraiser, tax collector, uh, all those coming up for grabs. So basically, almost every elected office in Florida will be coming up for grabs within one little six-month period between uh, you know November 2022 and uh, May 2023. Uh, and we'll be covering all that as we move on along. Uh, once again, I'm Sheldon Hall. Thank you. Uh, Eric for joining us. Good luck with your campaign. Thank you Mr. Nicholas Pate, our intern at Bold City Civics. You can follow that on all your favorite podcast platforms and uh, this is Contrast Project Lounge. Thank you so much for your support, as always. Well, that's all for today's episode of the Contrast Project Lounge. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week when we talk about some of the best of the best in arts and culture, news, and just about anything else that matters most to you. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a single episode. Remember, The Lounge airs every Tuesday evening, and our YouTube channel airs on Thursdays. For more information or resources about this or any of our episodes, please visit thecontrastproject.tv or any of our social channels. If you love our show, be sure to like, share, and comment. And don't forget to smash the subscribe button on our YouTube channel. We personally read each and every comment or review. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsors, 
our friends, fans, and followers for supporting this in every episode. Just remember, kids, in these uncertain, stressful times, make sure you take care of yourself and each other. Until next time, peace.